You'll make your way in your Bibles to the third chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just listen in as we work our way through this text, but it will be helpful if you do to look through Romans chapter 3. We, the jury, find the defendant. There's a word that comes next, isn't there? What do you want it to be? The guilty? Or is it innocent? Well, of course, that depends on the circumstances of the trial. We don't really care so much whether the jury pronounces guilt or innocence. We want justice to prevail. We want the innocent to be acquitted and the guilty to be charged with violating the law. As long as the law is just and fairly applied, we all benefit from the order the proper application of law provides to our society. Well, there might be one exception. I mean, if we were really, really honest, if I am on trial, then I want to hear innocent, even if I'm not. I don't want to hear that guilty. That might be how we feel, but it, we'd really not want to live in such a world, would we? We know that that doesn't work. It's selfish, it's a feeling, but it, it doesn't work that way. It's really a fantasy land. What if everyone on trial was declared innocent because they wanted to be? Our world would be plunged into ruin immediately. And if you would hoard the freedom from prosecution just to yourself, how would you be any better than the tyrant who has crooked judges in his pocket. Now we know at the end of the day that the rule of law must prevail. If there is to be any peace, if there's to be any prosperity in our world, the guilty must be judged and the innocent must be acquitted. And that includes me. What is true in the realm of human justice is even more the case in the realm of divine justice. It's not a different world. Sometimes we think in a very crooked way there. This is how it must be here on earth with people. But God's different. He can just overlook things. Human law, we know, can be unjust. It can be unfairly applied. The innocent are sometimes charged with wrongdoing. The guilty are sometimes exonerated. Laws are sometimes unfair or even harmful. But God is a perfect judge whose laws are never arbitrary and whose administrative administration of justice is never compromised. So we think on this area of biblical law, the law of God, a law that uh, overarches all cultures and times. God's law is not a list of arbitrary rules that are calibrated to make us miserable. Some have thought in those terms. And I've had some, some, one individual I remember even told me that. That's why God comes up with these laws, just to make our life hard. No, not the case. But what we need to understand as we consider the law of God, not that He's just finding ways to make life difficult, but that He is Creator. And that's very essential. God designed all things good. All things perfectly conform to the good that emanates from His being. That good is not arbitrary. That good is who God is. And He created the world good. 
And so His law is God's insistence that we live in sync with His creative design, which is for our good. He wants us to prosper. He gave us life that we might find abundance in Him. And His law is laid out to steer us in the direction that would lead us into the good to be part of that creative order. So His law is our life. And it is far more comprehensive than any law system people could devise or even begin to police. God's law, like the laws of our land, says that murder is wrong. But it also says that it's wrong to hate your enemy. It also says in God's law that we are to do good to our enemies. God gives us His law to help us synchronize our lives with the good that He has programmed into the creative order. It's not just to keep us from killing each other. It's to make us like Him. When we fall out of line with that creative order, when we fall away from God's glory, when we steam ahead to assert our own will as self-appointed Lord of our own lives, we contribute to the moral chaos that corrupts our world. We tend not to think of it in those terms because we say, I want to do what I want to do. But what we're really doing is raging against the order of the system that God has brought together for our good. In all of this, we must come to terms with the fact that our Creator stands over us and He renders perfect judgment. I, the judge, find the defendant. How does God finish that sentence? I, the judge, find the defendant. What? We find the answer in the first three chapters of the book of Romans with the conclusion coming in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Not reading those entire three chapters will come just to this conclusion. And we see here that the law exposes our guilt before God. Verse 19 reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's fairly obvious, but what is the law? The law is God's will. The law expresses what God wants us to do. The law expresses what He does not want us to do. The law addresses everyone such that, verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Under the spotlight of God's law, we the defendants are found guilty. I, the judge, find the defendant guilty. Since everyone breaks God's law, the reading of that law serves primarily then to expose our sin. Chapter 3 and verse 10 says, None is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It is possible for someone to live in our nation and never commit a crime. At least never to get caught committing a crime. That's a possibility. That is not possible under God's jurisdiction. The laws of the United States provide that a husband cannot smack his wife in the face. That's wrong. You can be prosecuted. But the law cannot demand 
that that husband loves his wife and prizes her. God's law does. The laws of the United States make it illegal for a child to murder his or her parents. The law cannot demand that children obey and honor their parents. But God's law does. The laws of our land make it illegal to rape someone. But the law cannot legislate against sexual lust or a lack of respect and compassion for others. God's law does. So under the law of God, every mouth is stopped. Every self-defense is silenced. We're all pretty good at that, aren't we? To defend ourselves. To hold our position. But before the law of God, no one can say, I fulfill that law. I've never broken that law. We become very quickly violators of it. God stands over us with the parchment of the law in His hand and He says, guilty. In fact, as verse 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does that mean? The works of the law. That is, human obedience to God's law. Notice very carefully, do you believe this? It says God will never declare anyone innocent because they obeyed the law. There's a lot of people that don't think in those terms. They think of obeying the law of God the best I can. And then if I bat a pretty good percentage, God will be pleased with that. But notice again what verse 20 says. By obedience to the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one will stand innocent before God on that basis. It's not about being a good boy and girl and then God will accept accept me. That gets it all wrong. Everyone breaks God's law. The law then serves really this end. It exposes my sin. It shows me where I'm wrong. Because everyone breaks God's law, the law exposes me as a lawbreaker. So, we could say it this way. The law has a diagnostic function, not a medicinal or healing function. That is, it exposes the disease. It says, here is your sin. It doesn't actually heal it or do anything for us in that sense. It doesn't cure it. So as we look at the conclusion of the first three chapters of Romans to this point, the law exposes our guilt before God. God speaks for our good, for our life, and He says, live like this. But we don't do it. We all break His law. But you notice verse 21 starts with the word, but now. Those are great words. Here comes the good news. God provides a righteous standing to sinners. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. But now functions, one commentator said, like a rail switch in a train yard. This wee phrase, this tiny little phrase, is a small piece of equipment with great consequences. Here's where we stand guilty before God, but now. The switch of the track here. There's something that has happened. 
But now the good news is that God has revealed a kind of righteous standing before Him that comes as a gift from Him. There is a righteous standing. That is a statement that I am justified. That I stand innocent before God. It's not achieved by obedience to the law. If we're thinking in that way, we need to change our thinking. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's arguing about. That, that's not going to work. It's not by obedience to the law. It's received from God. It is not that the law is in competition with the righteousness from God. In point of fact, verse 21 says at the second part of the verse, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the Old Testament Scriptures bear witness to this righteous standing before God. And we read of that in chapter 4, didn't we? This righteous standing that comes by faith. So it's not that the Bible is in conflict, that the law is given in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, it's pointing forward to a righteousness that comes from God alone. Verse 22, For there is no difference, no distinction, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the flow of thought, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction, and we could add many other distinctions, between rich and poor, well-bred and poor-bred, and on and on it goes. Whatever nationality you are, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality. The righteous standing before God is gained, rather, by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God comes, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So in our human weakness, a righteous standing before God does not come from looking to myself and my obedience to God. This is counterintuitive, and it's against what many even Christians would say. We need to see what God's Word says. My righteous standing does not come from looking to myself and my obedience to God. It comes from looking to Jesus as the one who supplies this right standing from God. You see it there again in verse 22. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who are, verse 23, sinners. So think of it this way. You stand as a sinner, as a lawbreaker before the holy judge of the universe. We fall short of God's glory. We fail to live up to God's original purposes for humanity. We have all sinned. But on the other pole, that's true of all of us. Verse 24. All are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now that pregnant statement right there is hope and life to sinners. And I'd like us to pick through this verse, verse 24, noting four very important words. The first word is the word justified. We are justified by His grace. What does justified mean? Negatively, it means acquitted. It means that I'm not guilty. Positively, it means declared righteous to receive a right standing before God. So this right standing before God, this declaration of innocence, this position of justification, notice then secondly, is a gift. It is by His grace as a gift. 
Again, this is to think very differently than many righteous religious people think. It is a gift. This right standing with God does not come by going to church. It does not come by being baptized. It does not come by doing good deeds in the community. It does not come by being born into the right family. Justification, a right standing before God, is a gift. It is something you must receive, not something that you can ever earn. Because as sinners, we cannot stand before a holy God. But there is a gift of righteousness, a gift of God's grace. It is indeed by grace that we are saved through faith. This does not come from ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one will boast in self-righteousness. So, justification. To stand righteous. To have a righteous standing before God. Gift. This is something that I receive that is given to me. Third major word is the word redemption here in verse 24. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. The redemption, this word has in view a price that is paid to free a slave from bondage. There is a freedom from slavery to sin and divine judgment that is available as a gift of God's grace. Do you want to receive that gift? Do you want that redemption as a gift? If so, you must know that this redemptive gift is located in a person. It is located in the person and the work, number four, Jesus Christ. So justification a gift, redemption, Jesus Christ. Stringing these four ideas together is really at the essence of what God has done to secure the righteous standing of sinners. It's my relationship to Jesus Christ that is the key to securing this right standing. How is that? How does that work itself out? Whom Jesus, verse 25, notice it. How does that work out? Whom Jesus... God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Is God a crooked judge? He says everybody's under sin, but I'll give them all a righteous standing anyway. Is God a crooked judge? We all break God's law, yet God declares righteous those who believe in Jesus. He declares the guilty innocent. Isn't that a miscarriage of justice? It's not because of what this verse says that there is a propitiation by His blood. To propitiate. We don't use that word every day, do we? It means to satisfy God's holy anger against sin and thus to provide forgiveness for the sinner. This satisfaction of God's anger against sin comes by the blood of Christ. That is, by Jesus' death on the cross. He bears there the weight of our sin and He dies there in our place. And what did this death accomplish? This death, this blood of Christ, this satisfaction of God's anger against sin was to show God's righteousness because in His forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's that all about? 
It's a bit complicated as he works through this to finalize this thought. But what are the former sins? What Paul is doing here is landing at a particular place in history, and that place is the death of Jesus Christ. From this place in history, the former sins are looking back in time. And he is saying that this world in rebellion against Christ, there has never been a judgment that has fallen upon it for its sin. Prior to the cross of Christ, those former sins have been overlooked in one sense of the term. God passed over them. Not in the sense that He looked the other way and ignored it. He's not an unrighteous judge. But in the sense that His forbearance of His patience with sinners delayed judgment. This was no miscarriage of justice. It was a patient steering of salvation history to the moment God judged sin by means of Christ's willing death in the place of sinners. On the cross, the full weight of God's anger against sin fell upon Jesus Christ. Prior to that time, you may know there was sacrificial offerings that were, were given, but they were all in anticipation of what Christ would do. In the former era, these sins were really born with patience by God, but there was a place in history where all of the judgment of God fell upon the head of Jesus Christ. Although He was sinless, He bore the guilt of our sin by dying in our place. His life was sacrificed to pay the penalty of our disobedience to the law. The wages of sin is death. And death fell on Christ. He bore the penalty of our sin. This is the only way that God could declare sinners righteous and justly punish sin. You notice there, verse 25, Verse 26, rather. Verse 26. There's two ideas here that He might be just on the one hand and justifier on the other hand. So He is just. God is a just judge in that He has meted out proper punishment against sin. He is a justifier, one who forgives, one who gives people a righteous standing as He in His grace forgives them in Christ. One author has said, as the representative of man, Jesus absorbs the judgment incurred by human sin as the representative of God conveys God's pardoning grace to sinners. There's such beauty in that. Here's the great exchange. This alien righteousness that comes to us. Jesus taking our sin and our death and in exchange granting us His righteousness and His grace. That's why we sing amazing grace. Now if your concept of humanity, of yourself, is that you're really a pretty good person in comparison with others, that you've done good things that bring pleasure to God, then grace isn't all that amazing. Because you're a pretty good person. But if you've come to recognize that we break the law of God, we stand before Him as guilty sinners, that justification is a gift, then grace is amazing. And God is just to punish sin by putting it upon Christ. 
bearing that weight himself, but also the justifier of those who are sinners. We receive this righteous standing as a gift from him. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 26. Does this then mean that Christ's death pays the penalty of God's wrath such that all are justified? There's a qualifier at the end of verse 26 that says that's not the case. He is the justifier of a certain person. Who is that person? The one who has faith in Jesus. The one who has faith in Jesus. There were some people that came to Jesus during his life, and I picture them with a with a pad and pencil. And they whip it out and they say to Jesus, Tell us what we must do to please God. What works must we perform to please God? And they're ready to write, they're ready to put down this note because they, they, they here's a righteous man. They're basically saying, Throw us any pitch and we'll hit it out of the park but give us what you think is righteousness. And as they're ready to write, he in a sense says, put your pad and pencil away. Here's the work that God requires to believe in me. I can't tell you how offensive that would have been to them. To believe in you. But this is where it always comes back. It comes back to the person of Jesus. And it comes back to this. To the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is what is so fundamentally twisted in us that we want to put our faith in ourselves. We want to trust in what I can do and what I can contribute But what the Bible teaches over and again, what Jesus said consistently, what the Apostle Paul writes here, is that it is the one who has faith in Jesus who is justified. That is, I look not within and from below for my salvation, I look above. I look to the risen Christ. That's where my salvation is found. And so this really messes with our normal way of thinking. It is so common to think this way. I should be free to do as I please as long as I don't hurt somebody. If it's not illegal, it's my business to do whatever I want to do. And other people should just butt out and let me alone. And we say the same thing, maybe more subtly, but we say that to God. Well, such thinking is entirely out of sync with reality. In fact, it's insanity. To see yourself as the captain of your own fate is to elbow God out of the way and attempt to run your own life. That is never going to end well. To set aside the law of God is to contribute to the disorder and the ultimate destruction of our world. It is to act against the creative good And the righteous judge of the universe cannot stand glibly by and just say that's fine and ignore that rebellion. He's not ignoring anything. But prior to Christ, all of that sin, and after Christ, all of that sin has been poured out upon His Son. He doesn't ignore anything. He can't because He's righteous. And by the way, 
If you're running your own life without regard to God, you really want God to go away and you want to do things the way you want to do it. How's that working for you? How's that working out? To set aside the will of God is to contribute to your own, min- your own misery and it is ultimate insanity. It doesn't work out. And I think if you're really honest with yourself, you realize that's the case. But the problem doesn't end just there. Okay, now I'll obey God. I'll try His law. I'll try to follow His ways. It doesn't end there, does it? And this passage teaches us that very carefully. Because the problem is, even when I acknowledge that I'm not the captain of my own fate, when I acknowledge that I must yield to the will of God, I don't keep it. I break it over and over again. I sin against Him. And I don't find the power within to do all that He calls me to do. So I might even desperately try to please God by living a good life, but I don't live that life, not the way that He calls me to live it. The good news is not this. Could you imagine this? If this is what I said to you, the good news is you need to try harder. It really is within you. And and there's people that are saying this all the time in Christian churches. They're writing it in articles. I could show you them. Uh, some some examples of that and they're just saying now come on it really is in you look within and try harder and then you'll please god what is the answer here the answer is that it's a gift and that gift is jesus christ it is to look on christ to turn from sin and self to the savior jesus christ The Father then will credit to your account the righteous standing of Jesus. You will still be a sinner. You will never deserve this righteous standing before God. It will always be amazing grace. But you will have the standing of Christ. That's the gift that God gives. That's not fair. It's grace. It's not earned, it's grace. But it is just because Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin. I, the judge of the universe, God says, find the defendant innocent of all charges. There's now no condemnation because this is now this one is now in Christ Jesus If you say today I want that righteous standing I want that gift then there is a call before you to turn from your sin and dependence upon yourself and to put your faith and your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He has paid the penalty of your sin and that He gives you as a gift of His grace eternal life.
As we leave here today, I would encourage you to talk to someone in the hallway. Talk to me if you want to find me. There's many others that would be happy to talk with you. And ask someone to sit down and explain this further, to talk through this further. It is absolutely vital. Because we stand guilty before God, but we can stand innocent before Him as we trust His grace. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we've not uh, talked through a lot of stories here today, but we have looked at the ultimate story. We've not talked about ourselves in a way that's flattering, but we have seen Your grace. And I pray that this truth, this realization of who You are and what You have accomplished for us in Christ, will be made clear to our mind's eye. I pray, Father, that in Your mercy, in Your grace to us, that You would draw to saving faith anyone that is separated from Christ today. I pray, Father, that for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, that we will see all of our life grounded in this reality and will rejoice and give thanks to You for all that You have accomplished for us in Jesus. We bow before You here in prayer and we ask that You will do a unique work. We've sought to look at the message of Your Word in its unadulterated discussion of salvation as a gift, of freedom from sin as an act of Your grace. I pray that that grace would dawn upon us. I pray that it would change us and transform us into the likeness of Christ. Father, now as we respond, I pray that You will work uniquely in this congregation and that we will bring glory to Your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together in response and sing number 56. To God be the glory, number 56. And uh, sing in response to the grace of God, His greatness and His glory in salvation in Christ. Number 56. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice praise the lord praise the lord let the people rejoice oh come to the father through jesus the son and give him the glory great things he hath done oh perfect redemption the purchase of God to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus apart and receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. 
Remind you that all are invited back to the fellowship hall as we end here today. And um, at time of refreshment, there's some food that's been prepared for us. I encourage you to go back there and uh, meet uh, those who visit with us today. And any who are here among us, we welcome you and we're thankful that you've attended with us today. We'll uh, not have our regular teaching time, but for the next hour or so that will be open back there and just encourage you to participate with that as we break here today. Let's bow before the Lord in meditation upon His truth and His glories. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.